good to be with you again this evening. I will join with Edwin in expressing appreciation for those who are visiting tonight. We do not take your presence for granted. There are many other things that you could be doing with your time this evening, but you chose to come out and to worship God and to study His Word, and that's, that's commendable, and that's an encouragement to this congregation as well. I thank you again for the opportunity to come back and, and speak during this, uh, this series of meetings, and uh, hope and pray, as I've said before, that um, the things that we are studying together will be a, a benefit to you and that you'll grow in some way spiritually because of our time together. I've had several ask me on a personal note, Mike, are you still riding a motorcycle? And my answer to that question is, when I can, but for the most part, no. I don't have much time to ride. I, with with uh, Levi coming along, the surprise, surprise of 06, as we keep calling him, that pretty much uh, ended my riding time, at least for a while. I tried to sell my bike last fall. thought I had it sold. The guy backed out on me, so I'm going to try again this spring. But I do have two dirt bikes now and a four-wheeler, so I'm still, still riding something. Uh, my son has uh, started riding a uh, dirt bike, and of course, I got him on it last fall, Micah, and um, he had been accustomed to the, the brake on a four-wheeler, which is uh, different from a dirt bike, and he got in a little uh, anxious situation and hit what he thought was his back brake, and instead it was his front brake. He was going down a hill when he hit it, so it flipped him, and he broke a bone in his uh, in his knee, and I told him, I said, son, I've been riding a motorcycle for 30 years, and I've never been injured as bad as you have in riding two or three weeks. So uh, anyway, that's that's kind of where that's at. I, we keep the orthopedic surgeons uh, in business, and Coleman Lydia has broke her clavicle. She's broke her left ankle, uh, and and my kids are really not that active, but they uh, and they drink milk. I don't know what the deal is, but uh, I also wanted to make a special announcement that everyone knows that, that uh, Phil and Warner are going to be leaving tomorrow afternoon to go to Ireland. I'm, I'm staying in their home. Uh, tomorrow night after services, everybody's invited over. <laughs> uh, I don't know what, what we'll have to eat, but, but whatever's there, we'll just, we're just going to clean it out. So if you don't have anything going on tomorrow night, the party starts after church at my house. <laughs> Somebody's going to show up, and I'm going to have to retract that statement. I was thinking today in preparing my mind for this lesson about the title. I've never been very strong at coming up with titles for my lessons. I'm an accountant. I'm not creative. It's not my nature. Uh, I'm not good at marketing. I'm not good at promoting myself. Usually my, my title pretty much just tells you what the lesson is going to be about. And, and tonight is, is no exception. We're going to be talking about the different classifications of angels as we read about those classifications in, in Scripture. Now, that might not sound very exciting. But I want you to think about this with me. 
If you were going on a trip to a faraway place, someplace you had never been before, you would probably want to buy a travel guide or some books or maybe rent a DVD on that place and learn as much as you possibly could about it. If it were a place where significant people of, of history had lived, you probably would want to read about them in anticipation of going to that place. As Christians, I've emphasized throughout this series that we're going to heaven. Let that sink in. Someday, we will be in heaven. That being the case, and understanding that the Bible teaches we are to set our mind on things above. We are to set our affections on things above. Then a study of angels will allow us to gain a little bit more insight into what it is we're going to be experiencing when we go to heaven. I hear brethren, and I have even made comments myself to the effect that, well, when I get to heaven, I've got some questions that I would like to ask Abraham, or maybe Isaac, or Jacob, or the Apostle Paul, or some other Bible character that is of, of special interest to me. Maybe you have someone in mind, and, and you've got questions, something about their life, something that you would like to, to ask when you get there. As we study about the different angels tonight, I think that thought ought to go through your mind. We're going to be talking about Michael, the archangel. We're going to be talking about Gabriel. We're going to be talking about the cherubim and the seraphim and those, those special order of angels about which we read in Scripture. If there are questions that you would like to ask, Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or the Apostle Paul. Just imagine what you could learn. Imagine what you could learn from a conversation with one of these angelic beings. As we begin our study this evening, we're going to start by looking at what I'm going to refer to as the ordinary angels. Now, when you think of an angel and you expose yourself to what the Bible teaches about these spirit beings, you come to realize very early on that there is nothing ordinary about them. I use the word ordinary simply by way of contrast. These are angels which have no special designation attached to them in the Bible. And... As I've already mentioned, we do read about seraphim and cherubim. But there are other angels that have no special reference. We're going to be looking at those angels first. The term ordinary, again, is not intended to, to classify these angels as of lesser importance than others. Look at Matthew chapter 26. This is a reference to angels, and it is those angels that we would put into that ordinary category. But I want you to notice what we learn about this particular classification of angel in terms of 
their work and their role and their, their activity. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, found himself in a situation where one of his disciples, named Peter, seeking to defend Jesus, drew his sword, and he cut off the ear of the high priest's slave, a man by the name of Malchus. And upon his doing that, Jesus said, put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. And then he raises the question, do you, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? And what that says is, is that these angels were there and they were waiting for Christ's command. Now, they never received that command because it was time for Jesus to die. Jesus' purpose was not to defend himself against the, the Roman authorities or the Jewish authorities. But can you imagine what, what the bloodbath that would have been if Jesus would have called upon these angels? These legions of angels that could have come and, and could have defended our Lord and Savior. Even though we may refer to them as, as being ordinary angels, their power was great and they were not ordinary. I think it's reasonable to conclude that any of the activities of angels that are not described as being functions of specific angels would fall within the sphere of the work of this general host of angels. Let's look at a couple of examples. First in Matthew chapter 13. This is the, uh, this is the parable of the tares and the wheat. It was a parable, the design of which was to illustrate to the disciples that upon the Lord's return, there will be the good, even within the church, and there will be those who might appear good on the outside, but there will be a separation. And in this particular parable, we see Jesus explaining to his disciples, beginning in, in verse 37, that uh, Matthew chapter uh, 13, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers, look at it, the reapers are angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness... And he will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth. So we see that the angels of God then, one of their functions will be in providing assistance to Jesus in executing the final judgment. Also, in the book of Hebrews, we've already seen where these angels are ministering spirits. We've seen in previous lessons as well in Revelation chapter 5 where, where these angels sing praises to God. They glorify God by virtue of their, their worship of Him. In Revelation chapter 7 and verse 11, we see a multitude who come out of the great tribulation. And I think the, the message that's being communicated here to those who would suffer is that there is something better ahead for you. 
But in verse 11, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they, they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. One of the points that I've made in this series is that we can learn from the angels. As we study the angels and as we look at what they do and at what they say, we can learn from them. Look at their, look at their perception of God here. They fall before the throne. They, they worship God in response. And that's what worship is. Worship is a response. In response to what God has done. In response to God's redemptive plan, they find themselves falling before Him and worshiping Him. And they are singing praises to God. And they are saying blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Do you have that much reverence for God? The angels do. And it should be our expectation and understanding that someday, in heaven, with them, we will have that, and we need to be preparing now for that. So the first classification of angel, then, is are these, these obedient servants about which we read throughout the Scriptures. The second classification that we read about in the Bible are the cherubim. And I'm going to refer to these as worshipful guardians, and you'll see in a moment the reason why I use that, that description. The word cherub is found 27 times in Scripture, and the plural cherubim occurs about 64 times. Let's look at a couple of examples. We'll not take time to review all of these, but go back to Genesis chapter 3. I think this is uh, an interesting reference. It's, it's the first reference that we find in the Bible to angels. After the fall of man, the sin of Adam and Eve. God drove them out of the garden. And he wanted to make certain that they could not return. And so we read in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 24 that he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Here is an example of one of these special angels of God who has been stationed at the entrance to the garden. And the purpose of this angel was to guard that special place. Now let's look at Exodus chapter 25. As we see the instruction that was given in the Old Testament covenant to the Israelites, those who were led by Moses out of Egyptian bondage, there was to be certain articles constructed, articles of worship. There was to be a, a place of worship. But in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 17 beginning, we read about the cherubim, two of which made of gold, that were stationed at two ends of the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant. Let's, let's just read the text together. Exodus chapter 25 beginning in verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide, and you shall make two cherubim of gold, 
make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat, and make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end, you shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. And the cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I shall give to you. Now what we see here is the ark of God symbolizing the presence of God. It would be the ark that would be located in the holy of holies. And here are these two angelic beings looking down, looking at that mercy seat, that place where, where God would, would express His mercy, and they're watching it. It's almost, again, as if, as if they are, are guarding that place of, of God. We also see in Exodus chapter 26 and other passages, artistic designs of cherubim that decorated the ten curtains and then also the veil of the tabernacle. There were images of these angels on those those items that were used to separate one place of the tabernacle from another. Later, when Solomon built the temple, he ordered that two cherubim be made of olive wood and that they be overlaid with gold. Each of these angels measured 15 feet high with a total wing spread of 15 feet. We read about those in, in 1 Kings chapter 6 as well as chapter 8. These, these huge angels were placed inside the inner sanctuary or in the most holy place in the temple. And again, their wings were, were spread over the Ark of the Covenant. And, and the woodwork through the temple was decorated with engraved figures of these, these cherubim, these angelic beings. And again, this, the, the tabernacle and later the temple came to, to signify or represent to the nation of Israel God's dwelling place. And we should not be surprised, therefore, that this, this little piece of, of heaven on earth would be filled with, with these angelic beings. But again, you, you, you get the sense that they are there to watch. They are there to guard. They, they are there to, to protect. One of the most remarkable references to cherubim is found in the book of Ezekiel. If you've never studied the book of Ezekiel, you need to study that book. It's an exciting book. Uh, Ezekiel was a prophet who was taken into Babylonian captivity. And through a series of visions, there was a message communicated to him that was to motivate and to encourage these, these exiled Jews to look forward to and to anticipate not only the return from captivity, but the ultimate realization of God's redemptive plan in Jesus Christ. But in the first chapter of the book of Ezekiel, we see four of these creature, four of these creatures who form what could be described as a chariot throne of God. I'm not going to take the time to read through all of this, but if you read through it, what you see is that, that God is letting the Israelites know that even though the temple came to to signify his presence. He was a God that was everywhere. 
just like this, this chariot throne that had four wheels that, that could move in any direction, so too was God. And that God could be with them in Babylon just like He could be with them in Jerusalem. But the vision that was, was experienced by Ezekiel communicated that message in a very special way. It also communicated the message that God was about to, to execute judgment against Jerusalem. Look at verse 4, beginning of Ezekiel chapter 1. And as I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with, with fire flashing forth continually and a bright light around it. And in its midst, something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. And, and within it there were figures resembling four living beings. And this was their appearance. They had human forms. Each of them had four faces and four wings, and, and their legs were straight, and their feet were like a calf's hoof. And, and they gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides were human hands. As for their faces and, and the wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. And let me just stop right there and, and make this point about reading this type of Old Testament literature. Sometimes we get lost in the details. We, we try to attach some meaning or significance to every minute part of the vision. I don't believe that was ever God's intention. I believe God wanted us to step back and, and to see the big picture. And what we see here is an awesome, fierce image of God in, in, in coming judgment again against Jerusalem. God was going to let the Israelites know that, that when, when Jerusalem was destroyed, it would, it would be because of their sin. But here again, we see these, these angelic beings as, as a part of, of this message to, to the Israelites. God's going to be with this righteous remnant. He wanted them to understand that. But He wanted them to understand, too, that He was, he was a God of judgment. God wants us to see that. He wants us to understand that, that He has these beings of power, that, that He has at His disposal whatever is necessary to bring about judgment of, of sin. And that should put fear within our hearts. That should motivate us to want to be, be holy and righteous and to overcome the temptations that we often face uh, in sin. Later in the book of Ezekiel, in, in the 10th chapter, what we find is God's glory departing from the temple. Again, the purpose of that was to communicate to the Israelites that he's leaving this, this sacred place. And he's leaving it because of their sin. Some believe that the creatures described in John's Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, are the cherubim of Ezekiel's vision. And I reference here Revelation 4, verses 5 through 11. We'll not take the time to read that, but if you read through those verses, you'll see a lot of parallels between those creatures and the creatures about which we read in the book of Ezekiel. That's why you need to study the Old Testament. You need to study the Old Testament books of prophecy before you study the book of Revelation, because you'll find in the Old Testament and in those Old Testament books of prophecy uh, insights that will help you to properly understand and interpret the book of Revelation. But again, all these references uh, that we see of the cherubim help us to see that they play a protective role 
in their relationship with God. Their nature signifies the importance of, of worshiping God, and they magnify the, the holiness and the power of God. It was these angels in the book of Revelation that, that sang, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Their relationship with God was such that they understood His holiness. They understood how distinct He was, how He was separate, how He was not just a God among gods. And again, we ought to be motivated as, as Christians to have that same understanding, as do our fellow servants, those sent out to minister to us, to help us. And that might just be one of the ways they do that is in, in helping us to have the same understanding and the same concept of God that, that they themselves have. Let's move on now to the seraphim. These are, I believe, purifying agents of praise. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, we see where God calls the Old Testament prophet to his, his prophetic ministry. And in this particular section of Isaiah's prophecy, we see references to these angels that are referred to as seraphim. Let's just read verses 1 through 7 together. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. The cherubim had four wings, the seraphim had six. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. By the way, uh, Jimmy Frazier asked the question last night, do, do angels have wings? These did. Uh, sometimes the, the images that we see of, of angels, as I suggested uh, yesterday, are almost sacrilegious. They, they make angels look more like, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, bumbling idiots. Uh, but when you read the Bible, that's not the impression that you get of these, these fierce and, and mighty beings. But anyway, in verse 3, one called out to another and said, here again, understanding God's nature, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is, is full of his glory. Again, I ask you the question, do you have that understanding of God? Do you have that concept of God? When you look about you, do you see God's glory everywhere? See, we need to open our eyes up and see what these angels see. We need to know what they know. Verse 4, And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the, while the, while the uh, temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, this is Isaiah speaking, Woe is me, for I am ruined. You would expect that from, from one who was experiencing what Isaiah was experiencing at this time. He says, because I am a man of unclean lips. As he, as he considered his sin against the backdrop of God's holiness, he cried out, I'm, I'm, I'm ruined. I live among the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongues. And he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Here again we see the, the interest of the angels in man's salvation. And we see again where the angel plays a role 
in the cleansing that Isaiah is experiencing in anticipation and in preparation for the work that God had called him, the work that God had called him to do. Incidentally, this is the only reference in the Bible to the seraphim, Isaiah chapter 6. The work of these angels is much less exhaustive in scope, but it is of, of great significance nonetheless. The seraphim sang God's praises. They called attention to his glory and his majesty, and they served as purifying agents, again, in preparing Isaiah for this, this ministry to which he had been called. Finally, we'll look at the last classification of, of angel, and that is the archangel, or archangel. Of all the classifications, this, this is the one that I think is, is most majestic. What we see is that these are messengers of God, and they are spiritual warriors. It seems that these angels had a higher rank than did others. And we'll see in a moment why that would be true. But the term archangel is, is found two times in the Bible, interestingly enough. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16. As Paul was writing about the return of Jesus, seeking to answer the questions or the doubts of those with regards to whether or not that would someday be a reality. Notice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16 what Paul writes about this future event. He writes that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, look at it, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and then the dead in Christ shall rise. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? Can you just... Can you just in your mind's eye and with your mind's ear, I suppose, hear that shout that will ring throughout the universe? The archangel will be announcing the coming of the Lord. In Jude verse 9, we see the other reference, and the archangel Michael is referenced in this particular passage. Jude, verse 9, we see that Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And the point he's making here is that even the angel had respect and showed respect. But there was a dispute that took place between this angel and the devil over the body of Moses. Gabriel another angel that is mentioned in Scripture, he is not referred to as an archangel, but most Bible scholars believe that he was an angel of this, this order. Both Michael and Gabriel played a unique role in the revelation of God's redemptive purpose. Let's look first at, at Michael. In the book of Revelation, chapter 12, Incredible scene, I believe, depicting the warfare 
the spiritual warfare that attended the crucifixion and then resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels, take note of that. Michael was a leader among angels. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough. And, and, and there, were no, there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is, is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Don't, again, get lost in the details. The, the message, I think, that God is communicating here is the victory that Jesus experienced in his resurrection from the dead. And the defeat that Satan experienced in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. It's an amazing image that we see here in the book of Revelation. And once more, we see an image that I think God is communicating about the greatness and the power of this angel, this, this, this archangel of, of God. Jude verse 9, we saw the reference just a moment ago. But now let's go back to the book of Daniel chapter 10. And this is where I believe the study really gets interesting and exciting. Daniel was a prophet of God. He was one also as Ezekiel, who was taken into Babylonian captivity, but he was a great leader among God's people, and he was, he was a man of, of great spiritual depth, great spirituality. But in the book of Daniel chapter 10, we, we find this, this prophet of, of God, and, and we find where an angel, Michael, again, is a part of what is being experienced. Daniel chapter 10, verse 1, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the message was true and one of great conflict. But he understood the message, and he had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I, I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. And on the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of and by the way, this is not Michael. This is an angel. This is a, another angel of God. His body was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and his feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Again, I mentioned earlier in our study that... that Angels can only be seen when God chooses that they be seen. They cannot be seen by unaided human vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone, and I saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I, re I, re I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Then behold, a hand touched me, 
and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, and this is what the angel said to Daniel, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, now listen to this, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. God sent an angel in response to Daniel's prayer. God was moved to send an angel. But why did it take him three weeks to get there? Verse 13, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. You have to just stop and think about that for a moment. Then in verse 20, then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. We're seeing here the rise and fall of world powers. We're seeing the pages of history being written. But we're seeing something else. What we're seeing is behind the scenes, the spiritual warfare that is, that is taking place in the heavenly places that has a direct impact and influence upon these changes. Do you ever wonder why God calls upon us to pray for, for, for rulers and for leaders, for those in positions of authority? Because God is at work. I believe in political events. And I believe what we see here is that this angel was sent to Daniel... But he was prevented from coming because of one of the, 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 the dark angels. He was behind the rise of the Persian Empire. And he was prevented from coming until Michael, the chief of the angels, intervened such that he could be freed up and then come. Now, this sounds like Chronicles of Narnia, doesn't it? But I tell you, it's, it's the truth. It's the truth. It's, it's, it's what God wants us to see, just a glimpse of what God wants us to see about the, the things that take place behind the scenes. In Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, we see another reference to this Michael. And he is referred to here as the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people. He was a chosen angel. He was a select angel who played a role, I believe, in the historical events that affected the nation of Israel. Gabriel. We also see references to him in the book of Daniel. It's an interesting reference over in chapter 8 of the book of Daniel. And what we see there is that Gabriel is sent 
to interpret Daniel's vision. Gabriel is sent to help Daniel understand the vision that he saw. On another occasion, in the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel, God used Gabriel in this particular book. Daniel is deep in prayer. He's confessing his sin before God. And Gabriel comes to him at about the time of the evening sacrifice to give the prophet insight and to give him understanding. It was this same angel that in the time of the New Testament announced to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, that his wife Elizabeth would have a child. He was a messenger sent to communicate God's revelation. He also was sent, that is, Gabriel, to announce to Mary that she would be the mother of the Messiah. So again, as we look at this last classification, these particular angels were special messengers sent to interpret God's revelation in times past and to announce good news of future events, and I think this is especially true of Gabriel. They were also engaged in spiritual warfare with Satan and his angels, and this was especially true of Michael. And then, as we've already seen, an archangel will herald the return of Christ. I want us to close this lesson by looking again with fresh eyes, with all that's on our minds now, at Ephesians chapter 6. Paul wrote in Ephesians 6 and verse 10, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And then he calls upon us to take up the weapons of spiritual warfare. But I want you to think with me for a moment about what might possibly be happening as we, as we engage in this spiritual warfare and as we pray to God. See these angels, our fellow servants, fellow servants working with us, engaged in this spiritual warfare. They who are most equipped to wage war. And in some way, I can't explain it, but in some way, that warfare impacts my life. In some way, that trickles out of the spiritual realm into the physical realm, and it results in my strengthening. It, it results in, in me being encouraged, maybe me finding that way of escape. Maybe this is how these angelic beings come to be ministering servants. They're fighting our battles behind the scenes for us. But they are our fellow servants, and God expects us to act. Whether we understand that or not, we, we, we understand this. We are, as Paul admonished, to take up the full armor of God, that we may be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness 
and having shod your, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. And take the helmet of, of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is, which is the Word of God. And with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, of which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. I've been gone 11 years from this congregation. I can't begin to tell you how encouraging it is to me to see familiar faces. I don't mean that in any way disrespectful to the new members. You'll understand my point. My point is this. It's encouraging to me to know that after 11 years, so many of you have been fighting that warfare. You've, you've been waging that, those battles, and you're still standing firm. You've seen others depart. You've seen others become unfaithful. You've perhaps had it in your family, maybe your children, maybe your spouse, maybe your parents, maybe brothers and sisters in Christ with which you had a very close bond have turned away and gone to the world. Let me tell you something. Don't ever give up this battle. Don't ever give up this fight. Life is short. Life is so short. And what God has promised us is worth the fight. It is worth the battle. There, there is nothing that you will ever experience in, in your life that will be so, so difficult to overcome that you shouldn't be willing to overcome it so that you can go to heaven. Let's, let's go to heaven. Let's see these angels. Let's, let's, go, let's go and worship God with them. That's what it's all about. That's why we're here. It's not just about being religious, it's about being righteous. And it's about maintaining that thing. And, and being as Paul, just, just fighting the, the, the battles and, and winning that war. And we can win. God has done everything possible to make that, that a reality for us. I hope I can come back 11 years and, and see a lot of these same old faces. I want to see you again. We all, we're all getting older. But let's just stick with it. Let's stay with the plan because it's a good one. This lesson is yours.